What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Uh, today's guest is Mr. Don Pendleton. We got linked up through the Daniel Rolnick Gallery, sort of helped out um, in setting us up to talk. Uh, we'd never met before, so it's good to have him on the show and get to know him a little bit better. Um, I guess I want to start this episode, I guess, sort of on a, a more somber note. Um, this week, we lost uh, a pivotal player, pivotal artist in the... Um, what we now see is the lowbrow, sort of hot rod, tiki, early juxtapose movement, um, and that's uh, the Piz. He uh, he committed suicide, um, I think, on Sunday. Of, see, I'm not sure which, within the last three or four days now. Um, and. This seems to be, there seems to be some sort of connection between uh, creative types and depression. And I'm not going to be pretentious and pretend to know whatever uh, the Piz was going through that eventually caused him to take his own life. But I know that in history, or, you know, uh, throughout history, we've seen that um, sort of manic depression, bipolarism, um, a lot of these things are found in creative types and uh, ultimately can lead to um, a person taking their own life. And I don't know if there's anything that anybody can do about it. I don't know if, you know, like talking to somebody would change anything. Um, I've, I'm almost under the impression that people will do what they're going to do. But I feel like as long as we have the opportunity, I guess we need to try to do something. And something that I noticed about this particular instance, um, and you know, I, and I don't, I'm not, it's a, it's an emotional response, but a lot of people tend to say, um, somebody passed away or somebody died, uh, when they commit suicide. And there's something different. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like somebody like, I, I'm almost in like the sort of libertarian boat in that like if somebody feels like they need to take their own life, then that's their life to do what they choose. Um, but then again, we look at mental illness um, on some level. We even see people taking antidepressant medications and then getting off of antidepressant medications and becoming suicidal in thought just due to um, the hormonal imbalance that, you know, I'm not a doctor, but the things that happen when somebody um, just cold turkey gets off of SRI medications or antidepressants or things that sort of uh, suppress emotion, there's there seems to be a big bounce back sometimes. Even people taking certain like sleeping medications will, you know, you hear it all the time in like the warnings that you hear for medications that they're advertising on fucking TV, which, you know that's a whole other topic but so i've been seeing this a lot and i i know it's people's emotional response and like trying to deal with the burden that's left over from a suicide and it's a lot it's a lot to shoulder and so i think it's a totally natural reaction but i think it's also important that we that we look at these things for what it is for you know for what it was and not to gloss o- gloss over it on some level, like to really see what was going on. And so I guess if there's anybody, you know, I know a lot of artists listen to the show. I know we spend a lot of time by ourselves. I know shows can be unsuccessful and careers can feel like a waste of a lifetime and can, uh, can drain on you. Um, myself, you know, like I see life as such a, like, rare beautiful thing to be able to experience even in its most miserable point it's like holy fuck we're on earth but i do just like anybody just like all of us humans we experience depression for one reason or another and i know a lot of creative types seem to get hit a little bit harder i think in my own experience it seems like when you're in the 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 down slope of something it seems like impossible to get up but it really is, from my experience, a lot of downs and a lot of ups. Like, as but maybe you're down for a long time, but you'll get a little a little bump up here and there. 
Um, and sometimes it's hard to see that when you're in the depths of a massive depression. Um, so I guess if I have anything to share from my own experiences, it'd be just to know that it's ebb and flows and to, even though it's horrible sometimes, like know that there is a bounce back occasionally. It may not be often, but it does happen. And so I guess for this, uh, I found an article that was written in the Press Telegram, which I think is a, it's a long, the Long Beach Press Telegram. Um, the Piz was from Long Beach. I'm, I'm not sure that I, they give a, uh, he was born in uh, Orange County, it seems. So I, I just want to read this. Um, this is written by Tim Grobati. I'll give his Twitter at the end to, um, you guys can follow if you'd like to. Um, and I didn't know the man. I've known his work since I started following this whole scene and the sort of generation ahead of him. And I've seen how it has uh, played its part in the history of art. Um, he was an important guy. And I think from what I hear that uh, he affected a lot of people's lives and helped a lot of people. And maybe he didn't know that. Um, maybe he did. Maybe it didn't matter. You know, like I said, I don't know what people, we never know what each other's experience is like. So it's hard to say what one person or another is going through. Um, but from what I hear, he was a wonderful storyteller. I really wish I could have got him on the show. Um, and you know, that's always hindsight, but maybe I could get some people if, uh, if anyone has stories about him that they want to share, maybe we could put together a bunch of MP3s and I could package it together and, and put it out so everyone can hear his story if they want to um and they should uh and you know his art is going to live forever uh for as long as it's you know kept safe and this planet is going so um piz this one's for you i'm gonna um read this and then i fuck all like the commercial bullshit today uh i i, I do i'm gonna talk about a show that's coming up here in a moment um, and then we'll talk about it again at the end of the show. But um, I'm just going to read this and then we'll we'll get on with the podcast, okay? All right, this one's for you, bud. A Farewell to the Piz, Long Beach's Zeitgeistically Poignant Artist by Tim Grabati in the Long Beach Press-Telegram. The Piz's last artistic statement was a bleak black and white photo of an unmade bed in a Long Beach hotel room near the airport. Its sheets and blankets twisted and bunched, a sign of restless sleep perhaps, or maybe just staged to look like it. On the wall behind the bed, the artist spray-painted the words Ozymandias, the title of a Shelley poem about a hubris of kings and inevitable turning to dust of the magnificent works and empires. The Piz posted the photo on Instagram on Sunday, then wrapped a towel around a 357 handgun and shot himself. The Long Beach artist was 57. He was born in Orange as Stephen Pizzoro, but don't use his name, a friend urged. He hated it. The Piz left home at 17 and launched himself into a career in punk rock art and punk rock art, and eventually became one of the most important artists in the so-called lowbrow art movement, using the familiar themes of the movement, hot rods, surfing, and tiki's, the holy trinity of custom culture. He came up fast working for the epic cartoonist Ed Big Daddy Roth and others, one of his first supporters was Long Gone John, the legendary founder of the Long Beach record label Sympathy for the Record Industry, who signed such great acts as uh, Geraldine Fibbers and, and the White Stripes. Long Gone John, who now lives in Olympia, Washington, hired the Piz in the late 1980s as his art director to turn out album covers and posters. I saw the photograph on Instagram as the Piz's last artistic endeavor, said John, his last exclamation mark. I'm thankful that he had the presence of mind at the end to go to a hotel room where his wife wouldn't discover his body. The Piz's mentor and idol was artist Robert Williams, now 72, one of the pioneers of the underground comic movement as part of the Zap Comics Collective with R. Crumb, Rick Griffin, and others. Williams was also the vanguard of the punk rock art movement, which is where he met the Piz more than 30 years ago. The two were part of the Art Boys Club, a raggedy group spoofing San Francisco's snooty, Artists Club with such members as Matt Groening, Gary Panter, Mark Mothersbaugh, and Neon Park. You look for a word for the Piz that means cool or hip or with it. My pedantic word for him is zeitgeistically poignant, said Williams by phone from his home in Los Angeles. He was a fountainhead of style. I liked him the moment I saw him. 
Panter was the father of punk rock art, but the Piz was right behind him. He had a strong personality and tremendous presence. Not everyone liked him. If you were sensitive, he could come across as abrasive, but he had a poetic nature. He was mentally a cut above people he hung around with, he said. He felt more comfortable with them. Me, I tried to drag my trash up to the higher level. He, he wasn't like that. Williams described the Piz as a street fighter. I always thought he would go down fighting, not by suicide. I guess things had just ganged up on him. It was like somebody hit me with a hammer when I found out. His passing leaves an enormous vacuum, and he will never be replaced. Uh, if you want to follow Tim Grobati, he's at Grobati, G-R-O-B-A-T-Y, on Twitter. Um, so, again, I, I don't know the answer to any of this stuff, but if you feel like you've had these types of suicidal thoughts, if, if you're taking antidepressants and you've found when you vary your medication that there are some suicidal thoughts in the back of your head that you feel are dangerous to you or to others, um, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline or visit their website. Uh, you can call them at 1-800-273-8255 or um, their website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. It's Suicide Prevention lifeline.org so again uh rest in peace to the piz may your artwork live forever my brother uh and again if you need help just ask somebody all right so let's um let's take this to a little lighter note i got a awesome show coming up with pangea seed and the cohort collective we are doing something at the kaboo art festival uh art music food creativity festival going down in del mar um our particular portion of the show is called reclaim the future it is happening september 18th and then it's going to move to the silo space the maker's quarter downtown on the 26th after the kaboo event is done um like i said it's called reclaim the future it's going to be a unique exhibition created in collaboration between pangea seed and cohort collective that aims to celebrate our seawalls generating greater awareness for global plight and the importance of our oceans via creative and inspirational avenues. Uh, again, following the exhibition at Kaboo Festival Del Mar, we will bring the show to the Silo Makers Quarter on the 26th, and we'll have a little pop-up gallery with 22 artists. There'll be live music, murals. It's a really cool space that puts on awesome events, um, and I'm psyched to be a part of it. If you want to go find some of this stuff, uh, you can follow at Cohort Collective, you can follow at Pangea Seed, and at K-A-A-B-O-O-D-E-L-M-A-R. That's Kaboo Del Mar. And there's going to be a bunch of rad artists. Uh, my buddy exists, uh, Nico Burke, who's been on the show, uh, Christopher Konecki, who I think, I guess we'll try to talk to him maybe this week if possible. He is uh, sort of at the the helm of the cohort collective here honky kong is going to be in the show he was on one of the very early episodes me of course uh my friend ben horton who has also been on the show and uh miss jacqueline rose who is also a podcast guest and celeste miss celeste byers was just on and she's been doing murals with Pangea, Pangea seed for a while her and aaron glason who i, I want to get him on the show as well um, so it's going to be good. Carla Ely, who has also been on the podcast a long ass time ago, is also going to be making some rad work. So make sure you check that out. Uh, follow the cohort collective, follow me. I'll be posting about it as it goes on. And, um, hopefully I'll try to get some of these artists who are going to be a part of it on before it starts. And, uh, it's going to be a pretty amazing festival. A lot of, um, cool artists and galleries from all over California and, the country and the world-ish. Uh, there's going to be live murals, humongous, like, out of, like, fucking, like, three-story tall murals that they've been working on um, for the last few weeks, I guess, uh, and months, and, you know, probably longer than that. Artists like, like Ian Ross, who actually hasn't been on the podcast yet, surprisingly. Uh, Luchin Shapiro, who has. Um, a bunch of galleries, like 111 Mina, uh, which is always a fun place to visit when in the San Francisco area. 
Miss Amanda Lynn is, uh, she is the curator for this thing. Um, she says, uh, the artwork gallery will host a variety of pop-up exhibitions, an art fair, and a Kaboo art exhibition, again, curated by San Francisco-based artist and Kaboo art director Amanda Lynn. She says, I'm extremely honored to have the opportunity to expose this epic work of all these visual artists to a new genre of audience. Music and art are so naturally interwoven, it only makes sense to highlight them both with equal enthusiasm, says Mandolin, which I'm super into. Um, so it's going to be good. There's a bunch of bands playing, no doubt, the Killers, Zach Brown Band, um, and a, a bunch of others. So if, uh, if you are in the San Diego area, you should come and check out this festival. It's, again, September 18th through the 20th. So check them out. All right, guys, let's get right into this podcast and talk to my friend Don Pendleton. All right. All right. Mr. Don Pendleton, what's up, my friend? Uh, just sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> just hanging out. Um, yeah. Thank you for, for taking the time to talk with me. Um, thank you. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Um, I always think back, like, so I always try, before I talk to somebody, I try to think back, like, the first time that I saw their work and sort of what my relationship was to it. Because you and I have never met, although we have um, a bunch of mutual friends. You just did a show at the Daniel Rolnick Gallery, right, with uh, with Porus and um, that whole crew of, of misfits and bandits up from the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah, Ferris Plock. Yeah, of course. I love Ferris. He's been on the show. Porus has been on the show. But um, Great, dude. it's interesting. I, I I started seeing your work before I even really had an inclination of an art career, I think, on some level, because uh, I had a friend growing up, uh, like my best friend who had the cool older brother who like showed us about like the misfits and punk rock and like tattoos and smoking cigarettes and drinking, you know, like the 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 one older brother who was like the pivotal like here's everything cool mentality, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so he used to, I don't know, he used to live down in Pacific Beach here in San Diego. And there was a couple different apartments that me and my friend who, who it was his older brother, we would go and like party and hang out with like the, you know, like the 20 year olds, the 21 year olds and thinking we were cool or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there was this one house that uh, I believe somebody that you probably know, Chris Pugh, you know, Chris, right? Um, yeah, I do. He lived at this house, and there was a bunch of alien workshop boards in the house. Um, and it was those early graphics that I believe, like, thinking back, I was like, yeah, I think those were all stuff that Don was doing back at the, in the day. Um, so that was, pro like, 98, maybe-ish? Is it, um, is that yeah, it? I, I just, I started working at Alien in 1998, so, uh, and it was pretty early in 1998 so later on it might have been mine earlier the work was probably my kills yeah i, I remember I, I specifically remember seeing your line work uh, there was also like the old like the um it was the the alien and the monkey and yeah. like there was that series and then there, there was a, it was all around that same time period um so i feel like that's when i started at least becoming cognizant of your stuff um, yeah. it, it seems to be like, it, do you feel like that was a, besides your own sort of, um, connection to it? Do you feel like that was a pivotal time for skateboarding? Uh, I do because it was at a point where skateboarding was kind of trying to still find itself. And we had gone through this era of knockoff graphics and reappropriation. And, and so at that point it was like skateboarding had become unpopular and it was starting to get popular again. And. So these companies were they they kind of knew who they were for the first time and they were developing their own identities and kind of becoming their own brands and before that it had just been skateboarding had been this amalgamation of different influences and imagery and identity and and so that was probably my favorite part of that era. Do you feel like the 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 graphic sense fits the the culture of the time? It, you know, like I never really like thought about it myself but as you said that it kind of like made me think i wonder how the graphic arts fits into the current culture in like decades you know like in certain generations yeah i, I think that i think some companies were ahead of their time for skateboarding i mean skateboarding was always 
or traditionally has influenced outside culture and and so bigger entities like pop culture have come in to skateboarding and, and taken certain things that they've liked that were small and made them big and vice versa. So yeah, I think, I think that, I mean, I like to think that alien, even before I got there was ahead of its time because, um, especially with the, like the vector type of graphics, whenever vector type are, well, people didn't know what it was really. They didn't yeah. know that it was created on a computer and, you know, for years I had people tell me like that's not art because you made it on a computer. Like I typed in coordinates or something and it just <laughs> yeah. came out. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, and I mean now everybody uses vector art and everybody uses a Macintosh to build and and all that stuff started by hand. And you know, when I got there, my kill had a stat cam and you know halftone screens and all that stuff. So I started off cutting separations for color by hand and doing letter set and all that stuff. So yeah. I've been a part of graphic design from that era and I've just kind of followed it through. But yeah, I mean, getting back to your, to your original question, I feel like alien before I was there was already doing things a little bit more advanced than the average skateboard company. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of like, I think graphic wise or even art wise, there's this, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is this inclination for generations to, in some way, almost like passively, aggressively attack uh, some of the work that came before. Does it, yeah. Do you see that at all? You know, like you 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 mentioned the sort of lulls and highs, or like the sort of ebb and flow of popularity. Like, is that low popularity moment uh, something that like the new the the new generation will look at and be like, okay, I'm going to improve here, here, and here. Um, I mean, I don't see it really that way i know skateboarding <clears throat> tends to look back on itself and notice all the mistakes that it made kind of like <laughs> with the big pants small wheels and you know i mean there's been i you missed know, the big pants <laughs> you didn't miss much no no <laughs> i was... no I, I mean i was there for them i, I, I oh, just, okay, okay. i just missed them in general <laughs> yeah i mean it was just that era that people look back on and there's certain things that you might uh you know like romanticize about it but that era in terms of what skateboarding produced wasn't real productive so uh <laughs> but i haven't seen, i haven't seen that kind of scrutiny applied to the graphics really because yeah. people look back even all the way back to like the vcj stuff with pal it's still really celebrated and that was right when skateboarding got popular on kind of a, a national worldwide basis so yeah and that's what i was sort of pointing out that like late 90s early 2000s was a sort of like a tipping point in national popularity i think even though that there's always been uh, a grouping of people who who were attached to it i don't know it just seemed like maybe just mainstream culture was finally acceptable it, it was accepting of it because, you know, like, it's so funny to hear stories of people uh, my age and your age of, like, the kids who got beat up because they were skateboarders as, yeah. as in comparison to now to where it's, like, it's sort of, like, the cool kid thing yeah. to do, yeah. you know? Yeah, captain of the football team. Yeah, sure. And I guess it's just the ebb and flow. It's the natural progression of things. I always say, like, uh, when little kids are are rocking, like, a fashion style – that started with like the cool hipster adults, then you yeah. know that that shit has it's run its course. It's at its its final death throes before the fashion becomes uh, sort of cliche. Yeah, or and it probably I, already I, had. I was gonna say I have a fascination with all the pop culture stuff, and and also I mean I'm I've been really critical of it, and and I'm still fairly critical of it, but um, you know it, it's part of the Part of it is me getting older. Part of it is the internet changing the world in the ways that it has since I was a kid. But there's so much of it that's so transparent and so obvious that, you know, it's hard to not be critical of it, you know, at times. So, but I'm an old dude. So that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be critical and, and kind of. I'm curious, does that, does that, does that critique come from a place of like, fuck, I want to teach these young fuckers, like, what is really up? Or is it like I'm so frustrated with the the idiocy of this thing that I just have to react? I think I think most of it's frustration. You know, <laughs> I mean, there there when I was growing up, since skateboarding was like this microcosm, and and if you identified with somebody by seeing 
you know, Ollie holes on their shoes or a certain kind of T-shirt, and you could automatically kind of connect with them. And now there's this artifice where you can see somebody in that full outfit, but you can't connect with them at all. You might have absolutely nothing in common with them. And so for me, that's kind of a foreign concept to see somebody dressed up in something that was part of a culture that that I, I came from and cared about. So I, that's part of it. Yeah, it's frustration and, and just like kind of feeling like I don't understand it. Yeah, that could be a sort of larger metaphor for overpopulation of, of anything too, right? Like the yeah. way that if our, our neighborhood gets overpopulated, we don't have the same like connections of seeing the same people that we know on a regular basis or whatever. Yeah. It sort of takes out the tribalism of it. Yeah, there was there was a full-on community, and it was a strong community, and it was a legitimate community. And there was, you know, we had our own language and, uh, you know, our, our, own, our own heroes. You know, like if you were a skateboarder and you grew up, you didn't, you weren't like looking up to Dr. J, really. And <laughs> you were looking up to Nottis or Gons or Tony Hawk. So yeah. it was just that culture that, that kind of made that, familiar connect familial connection with everybody that you knew and and to see that kind of change and grow is just it's it's just awkward and strange you know i don't i don't necessarily think it's a horrible thing it's it's just kind of progress but for me it's still weird to kind of have that disconnect well maybe could we jump back a little further you you grew up did you grow up you're in ohio now you you grew up out in the midwest out there is is that right i grew up in west virginia so okay yeah a real small town um and what uh what what'd your folks do what was uh your early life like uh it was good i mean my dad was a steel worker you know he was a union guy and my mom was a housewife and she took care of uh the kids and uh my dad painted when he when i was young and i got to sit and watch him paint at the table so that was a big influence on me i always had crayons and a box of like markers and notepads so i was influenced to do art and encouraged to do it when I was, you know, from the time I could hold a pencil, probably. What uh, what kind of stuff was he making? Um, I mean, honestly, he used acrylics, and but it, the only way to really describe it is folk art. He almost did these little pointillism marks to, of, of paint that would kind of create this larger image, and there were little slashes, and he used these these brushes that had little tiny, like, I, I mean, what's the bristles i guess <laughs> yeah little tiny bristles just yeah. like three or four little tiny ones so he would make these individual marks which would create these bigger pictures and so yeah it was like folk art he was he wasn't taught art in any kind of formal setting he just enjoyed doing it and so i i kind of grew up seeing that as a normal thing you know you get home from work and put out his his acrylics and start painting um and what and so that was it sort of like uh a respite for like being in the the steel mill all day you know was it like a sort of relaxation thing for him yeah i believe so and and you know as i went on to become an artist and make my living from art i always thought that was the coolest part was that he kind of did the job he had to do to get me to the point where i could go off and do my own thing and so that allowed me to kind of do what i feel like he sh- would have been able to do had he not had the responsibilities and all the stuff that he had, you know, he had to take care of three kids and a wife. So yeah, sure. he was. He couldn't really take the kind of chances that I've taken with my career. Does that give you a sort of different respect for the um, sort of capabilities of doing these things? Yeah, I mean, I was I was brought up with a strong work ethic. You know, I mean, I watched my dad work hard, and my mom was always doing something. So. Um, whether or not I was an artist or a skateboarder or, or whatever, I was going to do 100% and and kind of put all my time and effort into it. So, so growing up in that area, it was a blue collar town, and and that's the way people lived life. You know, you didn't really sit around. You just you were always doing something and trying to be productive. And so that's probably the main lesson I carried on, and and that went with everything I've ever loved. It's been, you know, whether it's skateboarding or art, you just kind of that's where you put all of your time. That's the way it just that's the way it's always been yeah i think from what i've heard people say of you that seems to be a sort of common theme is like the strong work work ethic and yeah i i had an agent that grew up in la and um he had a gallery in santa monica and 
and he eventually had a very large business, and he would only hire people from the Midwest because he claimed that those were the only people that would really work hard. And West Virginia is not really Midwest, but it's kind of in that Appalachian belt. And, yeah. and but yeah, I mean, he he genuinely believed that he he always go through stack of resumes and look for people that were from the Midwest. I you know I I tend to think that there's something um, there's a genetic line there that that creates some of that. I feel like people from like early Germanic or like Irish cultures, which tended to settle in Ohio, uh, down into the Appalachian Mountains, down the the uh, eastern seaboard, you know, uh, yeah. there I think there is like a genetic tendency to be like a working class type of people, um, or and it's not even like the, you're predestined. But there is within us, I think, something written in the DNA passed on through evolution and genetics that has sort of written in, like, a work ethic code. Yeah, and I I also think that a lot of it is environmental because, you know, my dad's dad was a coal miner. He he got up at the crack before the sun came up and climbed into a little hole the size of a manhole and stayed down there all day. So, you know, I remember I had this really shitty job at a newspaper one time and I wasn't making any money. And I called my dad up and I was like, I don't think I can keep this job. I hate this job. And he was like, he kind of gave me that, you know, like my dad used to get up at the crack of dawn (laughs) and go. And so it did, it put things into perspective. I mean, it, what he said was true, you know, like people have done a lot of really, really hard things to make a living. And I was sitting at a desk in front of a computer and, and moaning about it. And so like that kind of perspective, I think, changes the way you feel about what you're doing and, and how you kind of frame it up. Yeah. I wonder, if, does, does that also play into the sort of um, the, the sort of double edged sword of towing the line between doing commercial work and fine artwork you know like working for major corporations and then uh doing something in your studio that's just personal that you're working on for a show or something uh you seem to i i feel like you're you're pretty seamless in between those two worlds um do you feel that way from your perspective um i try to do you know i try to be seamless because i i take the same approach whether it's commercial job or, or a painting and I, I did a, I had a solo show at a museum last year, and the title was Fine Lines. And the whole concept was, you know, we hung skateboard graphics in the right beside of paintings, and kind of explored and discussed the fine lines between the commercial art stuff and the painting and the personal art. And so that brought up a lot of like historic art situations, like Andy Warhol being a commercial artist and then becoming a fine artist, and then kind of blurring that same line so it's been done before by people some people have done it really well i think some people have had a real problem trying to do it but i think i'm under the radar enough to where i'm not scrutinized and i can still get away with doing whatever i want to do you know without too much thought of an end user or a consumer or all that stuff you know i I just i try to block that out when i'm working on something yeah and you know you avoid some of that uh I guess negative criticism. You think by being a little under the radar? Um, probably, but I think it's just you know, like I don't think I create artwork that would ever appeal to a massive audience, and um, and I, I'm kind of I'm grateful for that in a way because it does allow me to get away with stuff I don't think I could if I were somebody that was being looked at and discussed a lot and. That would probably freak me out. I mean, it would definitely make me reconsider a certain approach that I take, and I, I don't, I don't want to have to deal with that. You know, I just want to kind of block that out. Yeah, that's something that you know, like looking at like the way celebrities are treated in public, or you know, just in the general media. Like, there's this whole different set of obligations when you're like the media darling, I suppose, as opposed to being able to just sit back and do your work. And not really yeah. stress on all that shit. Yeah, and I mean, you have to feel a little bit of sympathy for people like that. I mean, I've known some really successful people, and I've seen how it's changed them, and I've seen how it changes what they do. And uh, if you're an artist, that's the last thing you want to deal with is is to worry about people that you're not trying to connect with judging you. Yeah. And I, I, 
I, I feel like I can connect with certain people and I, I, I kind of keep those people in mind when I'm working and, and when it comes, whenever the audience gets larger and it's, it's a group of people I don't know very well, it's, it's really hard for me to, to connect with that group. I'm, I'm also curious, you know, like in, in creating the seamlessness between the two worlds, I'm curious about your particular feelings in general, you know, like, so it's been a pretty common theme on the show and something I've found within myself, like when people ask me to do something that isn't the thing that I just decided to do, there's a completely separate type of emotional, um, mental state, a, a, a completely different sort of reaction to creating that versus creating the thing that you decided on. It's almost like a they're like the, that willingness to um, to work with somebody else to collaborate. Yeah, that's what I'm curious. Do you have a different feeling from it there because your work it it, it seems so similar? Um, I feel like I mean I've been really fortunate because. Most clients that come to me know what to expect, and they're not trying to make me do something that I, I would normally do. So whenever I get approached, a lot of times part of the way I determine if I'm going to take a job or not is based on the direction and, and kind of the concept that they have in mind. Because you know, I have if it's not something within my realm of comfort, then I just don't take it usually. And sometimes there have been situations where I've gotten pretty far into a project, and then there's this weird direction out of kind of left field that I'm trying to deal with and and that can be difficult but for the most part I've been pretty fortunate that you know if it's a job that doesn't seem like something that I'd be comfortable with I just don't take it usually yeah you know sometimes I you know like sometimes a collaboration can create something and I recognize it as better than what I could do on my own and that's I think the ultimate goal of a collaboration but a lot of times it's just a marketing term and they just take your art and throw it on something and voila that's the collaboration and sometimes they you know you work with another artist or a designer and and you guys really do kind of sit down and boil it all together and bring something else out of it yeah there so. is some some interesting uh new ideas that form from that that we may you know on our own perspective may not like the the ability to try something new i think comes with collaboration i guess yeah, I mean, I, I get stuck in my own head all the time, and I'm kind of a victim of that being in my own little world. And, and when I work with somebody else, it does force me out into a different kind of comfort zone, outside the comfort zone, and look at something from a different angle. And I think that's always good as an artist. You know, whether or not the final product is good, the experience usually, like, to deal with somebody and have their input and kind of put all that stuff together is a good experience. When uh, when did you decide to start making things for the the gallery type environment, or you know, like did did one or the other come up first? Um, you know, I, I did graphics at Alien Workshop for a couple of years until around two thousand was probably the first time that I would had an offer, and it was weird because yeah, part of it was undoubtedly just being associated with Alien Workshop. Part of it was my artwork, but whatever it was um yeah I, I had people that contacted me and and galleries that wanted to show my work because i was the alien guy for a while so that was where it started so around 2000 2001 i probably was the first time that i ever and, and even then i didn't take it seriously you know i just <laughs> yeah. I, I would send stuff in and it was always the worst stuff and i i actually went to a group show one time where i contributed something and people had these super nice frames and really nice paintings and mine was on like a shitty store-bought canvas with like you know so it was a learning curve just to be involved with that world because it is a different world but i'd never taken it too seriously so i've never been too disappointed you know yeah but you were obviously you, you were making hand-done work before that i i was i would assume that the graphic work starts in a in a hand done basis right yeah yeah I, I mean i i have a degree in graphic design and I, I didn't go to an art school but i did have painting classes i mean i had and it was just acrylics and it was a very simple like introduction but i had painted for quite a while before i was ever doing computer stuff and everything you know i have even to this day i have a ton of sketchbooks from the alien area where all that stuff 
started as a drawing. I never ever sat down at the computer and started a graphic. I always knew what I was going to create and went and used the computer as a tool to help me, you know, get it together, straighten the lines. It was ready for output. You know, that's the way that's the way everything got printed and went directly to film and and to have that stuff as a file made it just much more efficient and much easier. Did some of that stuff help with learning how to paint? Like for me, like there's a few things like um, learning screen printing and tattooing and even graphics work, like layering graphics work sort of helped mm-hmm. me learn how to paint before I knew how to paint necessarily. Yeah. Did you have that same similar experience? I think it influenced it. I mean, I, I did screen printing too when I was, uh, you know, I worked at a skateboard shop and the guy that owned the shop did printing in the back, so I would help him screen print shirts. So I was introduced to screen printing in probably like 1989 or so. So I always, like, I love that process. I love the effect that you get with a trap line and, and like, these layers of ink. And, and even with the original skateboard graphics, like, the first board I ever had, you could see, like, the trap lines and the layers of this ink. And yeah. So there's something about that that's influenced my painting. And, and I always do paint in solid colors that are blocked and, and trapped. And so it certainly has influenced... The computer stuff has influenced the way that the hand stuff has been done where originally the hand stuff was influenced in a way that the computer work was done. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, is, you know, like you mentioned like sketching stuff before the graphics work, but it sometimes for me, if I'm looking at your work, there's a sense um, looking at it. It's just a, a random viewer that there is some abstraction to the figurative work that you're doing in that it almost seems as though your work could start as a bunch of scribbles, but very mm-hmm. clean scribbles, not in like a like childlike scribble. But I feel that there is a like a childlike nature, but in a very clean sense of the word um, to some of your paintings. And, and I guess it translates into the graphics as well, since, you know, everything seems to, to fit into both. Uh, is, is that sort of your process for creating work? Do you have that sort of like flow? Um, yeah, I think it's usually what happens is I draw something that's really, really loose and then I redraw it on the computer and I, I never use a stylus. I never use any that I've always used either a trackpad for my laptop or a mouse. And what I've done is just kind of recreate the looseness. And then there's a stage of where things kind of get developed and there's this period where I'm tweaking the lines while I'm on the computer. And I think maybe I do see things on the computer that I didn't see in the sketch and I try to develop those lines. And so there's a development stage during the sketching process. And then after I redraw it in the computer and then, you know, before I finish it up, I think there's this kind of evolution to making the final piece. It's funny that you had talked about the, but, the idea of the frustration in the overpopulation because I kind of get that from a sense of your work too. Like there's, there's a, the, the typical imagery there's going to be, or, you know, you have a lot of singular imagery too, but there's a lot of, um, multi-layered characters and figures, uh, almost intertwined together with the sort of scribbly line that I earlier described. Uh, do you, is there some correlation to those same sort of discomforts? Uh, I, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I've done has been about conflict resolution and and kind of people coexisting and trying to deal with one another because the one constant in my life has been, you know, like the media and, and seeing these constant stories of combat and, and people just trying to live together in the same space and whether it's an argument or a war or a legal battle, it's like people can't seem to get along. And so that's an idea that I explore because really when you're talking about art or you're talking about the world, you're talking about the singular space and everybody has to share it and these lines have to share the space. And so they're either going to coexist peacefully or harmoniously or they're going to fight each other and they're going to try to fight for whatever open space is available. And so... That's a part of, of what I try to do is, and it hasn't been super conscious, but it's something that's always kind of been there is taking the space and dividing it between the lines that are on there. It seems like there, I could see that connection between those battles on, on some level. And even that idea of the fight for space. And really that's what it boils down to on some level in terms of war and, uh, 
and conflict is uh, uh, control of resources uh, of what's available and then yeah. control of the power uh, that can control those particular resources that are taken over uh, in some way. Yeah, and I think with the, with the right line work and the right composition, you can control the eye the way that people see it is the same way that people control space, you know, or, or, or property or whatever, because you take a blank canvas and you draw one black line down the middle, you suddenly have two white spaces and you draw another line, you suddenly have four equal, possibly equal white spaces. So that's what you're doing is you're breaking up space and you're dividing it and you're kind of, you can do that in a way that's really equal or you can do it in a way that's unbalanced and kind of chaotic. So that's, do you find that you fall into one of those, one or the other in terms of like symbiotic or, uh, or chaotic, you know, like, can you, can you sense when you make a line, whether it's a chaotic line or a, a smooth, like symbiotic line? And I think the ultimate goal for me is like the controlled chaos, you know, like I don't want things to be symmetrical all the time. I, I just want, but I, but I still think there has to be a visual balance. So while there's this chaos, there's got to still be some kind of order to it. I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to go so abstract that it's unrecognizable as, you know, it's just a line. I want you- there to be a little bit of harmony. Do you think that order is definable? Like, you know, so like sometimes you could look at a piece and you could tell something is off about it. Like, but it's not like you're like, oh, well, that piece shouldn't be there or that piece shouldn't be there. But like just instinctively, there is a sense of something's off and vice versa. You could do the same like, wow, everything seems very harmonious here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think I see my own work pretty critically in. I, I see the flaws in it and people will say, I don't, you know, I don't get it. I don't see it. And they, maybe they're not supposed to, but I, <laughs> I do look at it pretty critically. And I, I do see if a line is a little bit out of place, like I notice it and, and it's usually about weight and it is an instinct to a degree. I mean, it's a lot of times when I paint, I don't have a sketch ready and I just start making lines and then I develop those lines. So that's about as instinctual as you can get, I think in terms of, of just laying the paint down directly on the canvas and kind of meandering it around and then developing what you see out of that kind of just mess. That I feel like that's and that's sort of what I was getting at before. Like does that moment is there a greater sense of um ease in one's mind like doing that work in comparison to like tomorrow skateboard graphic or t shirt design or, you know, shoe logo that you have to do or whatever. I, I think it's more fulfilling, but it's really like it really makes me anxious and nervous to just start painting. And I'm, you know, because I'm responsible for like myself on that spot of trying to find opportunity to develop a shape or or to add something into it. And uh, yeah, it's kind of stressful. I, I don't know what it is. It's there's always been this point with art when I'm drawing something that I will get nervous and. Um, it's irrational but it happens like i get to this point where i'm like it could be good this could end up really good it could end up really bad and that part of it makes me nervous i i because i care about how it ends up and <laughs> yeah so when i am just painting randomly it can be kind of a nerve-wracking process it's so funny i feel the exact opposite so any type of like corporate commercial like commission graphic or even painting work is like just anxiety filled the whole way through whereas painting like it just feels like a comfortable like um beanbag chair of, <laughs> of love <laughs> i wish i could get to that point and and i think a lot of it is just i mean even i've painted over so many paintings in my i mean i've for every painting you've seen i've probably painted three and <laughs> and i will get to the point where i'm just like fuck this and and i just start over and and like, that's like where I just give in to the anxiety and say I can't save it. It de- doesn't. It doesn't reflect me. It doesn't feel like something I sh- that I want to create. And yeah, I think everybody does that. I I, I assume everybody does that. Uh, and it's kind of funny. Like I always think about um, what's going to happen further down uh, in history when the modern technology and art restores uh, 
200, 300 years from now are taking the x-ray out and looking at the paintings and <laughs> seeing the three paintings that were underneath. They're like, there was four paintings. <laughs> Dude, like, I think it was when I was in California for the opening at Artist Republic, somebody who had bought a painting, they were like, oh, we were moving a painting from one room to the other. And, you know, like it just happened to catch the light and we could see another painting underneath it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, you got the bonus painting. You got the one that had two paintings on it. That's so rad. But yeah, I mean, and I don't do a great job of covering it up because at some point I feel like the that imperfection will add something to it somehow in my mind. I don't know, dude. So you won a Grammy this year? I is did. That, how how insane is that? Uh, it was pretty surreal. It was just you know something I that was just kind of going on in the background. I you know, I didn't go to the awards ceremony or anything and. I was convinced that there wasn't any way that it was going to win, so I didn't pay much attention. And then the day that they did the awards, I started to get texts, and somebody had texted me and said, "You won the Grammy," and I, and I text back, "No, I just I got nominated. I didn't win." You know, <laughs> like I was, and and they're like, "No, you like they just announced that you won," and I was like, "Oh wow!" And then I, you know, that was it was just kind of like this. Yeah, it was kind of like a different planet. That's pretty rad. I didn't even realize that um, that they gave away art awards for for album cover work. Yeah, I think it's been going on for a long time, and I didn't know either. I I actually looked it up. I think <laughs> after I found out that it was not, and it goes back to like, I mean, there's been some famous designers that have have won it before, but you know, it's it's like anything else where somebody's judging something that <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, it's nice, and it's a nice kind of thing to remember that project by, but I, I recognize that it's just somebody's opinion over, I don't know, art, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, but it's also nice to put that into context of, you know, like, I know for me and generations of people, uh, the artwork on album covers has been super influential. I, I can I can think of... A million, you know, I could think of a hundred different album covers that I remember the art for that was specifically influential to me. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. you get to sort of be a part of that history on some level. Yeah, and when I, when I started this with Jeff Ament, the the bassist from the band, and uh-huh. we had this discussion early on, and and we did that's what we did. We talked about albums that we loved and albums that kind of influenced us, and how that era of holding vinyl in your hand and looking at the album cover and the liner notes and and how that was just like this kind of magical era and we wanted to try to recreate that so in a way it was fu- it was fulfilling to have that get some kind of acknowledgement whether you know it was from the grammy academy or whatever yeah i, f- I kind of fear some of that is going to get lost i mean there has been a resurgence of uh vinyl aficionados but yeah. the, the idea, I mean, I remember just looking through my dad's album covers just to look at the album cover art, you know? Like, I remember yeah. there was a, a Fleetwood Mac album that it mm-hmm. had a very Dolly-esque. It, very, it could have been a Dolly painting. Um, it's like a big baboon eating a, a cake with, like, drippy icing in the middle of, like, a weird Dolly-esque sort of environment. Yeah. Um, and, I, like, I, and, or even, like, um, like Witch's Brew. Um, yeah. like all of that stuff, had, like I remember just being super fascinated, not even really caring about the music as much. You know, we had always had music playing, but that the actual work on the albums was very, it, and I didn't even know why, but it, it stood out to me on some, I was attracted to it for sure. Yeah. And, and in a way it was kind of like before skateboard graphics or skateboard graphics album art was kind of like that main source of. Of imagery and art that you were kind of exposed to when you're young because everybody had a turntable and at the time everybody had a vinyl when you were a kid and so it's that first thing where you just get one kind of singular isolated image that's presented as part of something and and eventually like skateboard graphics became that for me but at the when you know when I was a kid it was album art was kind of it you know you could just kind of rifle through stacks of albums and you were and drawing the song. Even the notes, like the stuff that was in the booklets even, was often, you know, full of art and drawings and, like, little different, like, creative things. Yeah, and I think that was the saddest part. I mean, if there's a downside to technology, whenever the MP4 came around and 
there was LimeWire and all this uh, file exchange. It, <laughs> yeah. You know, people wouldn't even, you know, they had the album, but they wouldn't, they didn't know what the album even looked like. Half the time they didn't know the name of the song. They just had this meaningless file and it lost <clears throat> all of the, the things that surround it and kind of make it what it is when it's presented as a package with the other songs and the album art and and the lyrics and all that so that's another big loss like having you know like we're i feel i i mentioned the other day that we're in a one hit wonder generation now and and not that we haven't had one hit wonders in the past we clearly have um but there isn't uh almost like there isn't the attention span that it takes to sit down and listen to an album from the first song to the last song absolutely yeah i mean and and it's instead of like one song and then you go away it's like there's you might even may not even have like an actual hit it's just kind of people pass you around on instagram for a day and you (laughs) get all excited and then the next day nobody cares or knows who you are yeah and that's i think that's a big fear i i feel like i feel that a little bit in terms of the again back to the sort of oversaturation and i just i just had travis louie on the show and we sort of talked about this same thing like how technology has has sort of made a bunch of people into artists without maybe all the legwork that pre-technology artists had to go through. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I have a lot of theories about that, but I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you, you could have 120,000 followers on Instagram and still be working at Starbucks, you know? So <laughs> it's like the, the value, the, the actual value of what a, of what that means is, is not as great as a lot of people kind of attribute to it. So um, there is a lot to be said for earning your way and going slow and, and you know, like, I don't know. I, I'm kind of mixed opinions about that, but I, I just it's it's weird to me when I see somebody working harder on getting noticed than they work on the actual art that they're trying to present, and and to me that's kind of a foreign concept. But I see it all the time. So yeah, that's interesting. And you know, I a lot of times I feel like there's now a new pressure to feed the content machine as well. So, oh God! <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, like, you wake well, up, absolutely. you wake it's, up in it's... the morning, and you look, and you're like, "Oh, I haven't put my two cents into the information machine today. I need people to know that I still exist, and that I'm also contributing to the to the big mass head of, yeah, yeah. of mass and, information." And like you said, it's it's a day to day basis. You don't even get a respite because, and, and the fucked up thing is, I mean, you could literally work. Like, I think of an artist like Dave Kenzie who. I imagine he puts a lot of time and effort into his paintings. He's one of my favorite artists, and uh-huh. like he puts it up on Instagram, and and you literally get this like one second of approval. Like, am I gonna upload? Or I mean, the average person, I'm like uploading everything he does because I I think the dude's brilliant. But yeah. I mean, for the average viewer, you get this one second, and and you put all this time and effort and weeks of work into something, and they give you this like, and eh, nah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like. All that work and all you get is a thumbs up or, or nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous, and and you almost you like, but you still kind of had to play that game a little bit. And I think maybe the average lure, the average viewer, uh, you know, we talked about respect earlier. Like maybe they, there isn't as much respect for the amount of time and effort that goes into something. And you, you mentioned Dave. Like I, I worked at for I was Shepard's assistant for two years, and so he it was when him and Dave were working together, and I got to watch the amount of time and effort that Dave put into everything that he did from early in the day till late at night, and so like being able to to see that work ethic just in sort of the same way that you talk about your father um, gives me a, a complete different respect for the work, and I think. Again, maybe the Instagram, like, people, like, posting, like, in-progress stuff, like, just to post shit uh, mm-hmm. to the feed the machine, also, on some level, gives people a different insight into some of the work, even though it's so immediate and gone. Yeah. And I think that's interesting part of it. I mean, it, it can play a positive role. And, you know, you do, as a fan, you want to see this stuff like kind of the developmental stage and the process and i think that's cool that you can connect with people and give them that insight but i mean for me like when i think of instagram i think of i could put 
a ton of work into something and present it, and it'll get a certain amount of pretty predictable likes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. then if, if I take a picture of a goat and put, like, a character on its back and, like, a party hat on top of it, people go apeshit, and it'll yeah. get, like, 2,000 likes. <laughs> and that's, like, that kind of puts things into perspective. This is what this is what people really want to see, and, and, and I'm not going to be the guy that's going to give it to them. On a, you know, I could draw Garfield and the Simpsons hybrids and yeah. all this other stuff, the Mickey Mouse bastardizations, but I'm not going to do that because it's too easy. I know it's like people want me to jump through the hoop, and I'm not going. Good. I, I love I love a, a, an antagonist, or at least a, a, somebody who defies authority, an anti-authoritarian. Oh, I would rather go down in flames than to give people exactly what they want. I just—it's just my nature. It's, it's, and I might, you know, that's the, that's the punchline. <laughs> yeah, you may just burn burn into glory as uh, instead of just doing what somebody else tells you to do. Huh? I'll always have my Grammy, man. I'll always have that. <laughs> Beautiful. I think that's a that's a good spot to end. We got forty five minutes. You uh, you feel like we got everything out there? Yeah, yeah, it sounded good. All right. Uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time to shoot the shit with me. I, I do appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate it. That was a lot, that was a really fun conversation, and I, I'm glad I it wasn't just the normal like Q and A. So I yeah, had fun. Um, I hope we get to uh, hang out sometime. Where can um can we send some people who maybe don't haven't seen your work before or don't follow you on the interwebs? Maybe we could send them your um, way. I have a website that's elephant.com, E-L-E-P-H-O-N-T. And then on Instagram, I am Pendledon, P-E-N-D-L-E-D-O-N. And same thing on Facebook and Twitter. So Facebook, backslash Pendledon, Twitter, LickMyBalls.com. <laughs> Do you have any uh, any shows or anything that's coming up here in the... Um, I, right now, I'm focused on a few things. Um, I have a Vulcan signature line coming up, and we're starting work on some promotion for that. And, but I, and then I have a print being released uh, through Poster Child Prints. But I don't have any shows right now. I'm taking a little break to. I just, you know, I just had that opening last month, so yeah. I'm going to start painting probably around fall, and then go from there and see what happens. But sounds good. Well, we're we're going to be doing a, a five year anniversary show for the podcast, a big group show. Um, so you're welcome to get a piece in that show. It's actually going to be at the Daniel Rolnick Gallery. So I don't know if any oh, of your cool. work is still there or not, or. It, Oh, but, that's another thing I do. I have one remaining piece at that show, so if anybody's interested in an original black and white drawing, there's one at the Daniel Rollnick Gallery right now in LA. Okay, nice. Perfect. And then maybe if it doesn't sell by then, we'll pop it into the fire. Yeah, just show. put it in there. Just slide it over. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we do things around here. We're efficient. <laughs> All right, so normally we would do an internet dap, but I can't see your knuckles because your camera's broke, but I'll just go boom to the screen for you, and it just I'll just assume you did it for me. Yeah, vis- yeah, just mental boom. Yeah, mental booms. All right, brother. Thank you again. I appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what you do over the next coming years. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, have a good day. You too. All right, bye. Bye. All right, that was my chat with Mr. Don Pendleton. Nice to have him on the show, rad dude. It looks like he has sold all his work from the Daniel Rolnick Gallery already, so hopefully we'll be able to get a new piece from him for the show. Uh, we'll have to him a little bit. <laughs> uh, make sure you follow him on Instagram. It's at Pendledon, P-E-N-D-L-E-D-O-N. On the Instagrams, I got a bunch of things coming up uh, over the next month, so let's get a little pluggy-pluggy in. Um, on September 12th, I will be down at La Bodega Gallery doing a live painting like mini one-night show. So I'll have some stuff that I have painted in the past hung up on the wall, and I will be live painting while uh, the show is going on. So you can come out and see exactly how the fuck I put the junk that I make together. Um, If you want to buy something, you could do that too. You'll be able to uh, purchase stuff right off the wall. And I'll, uh, I'll be hanging out, drinking beers with the guys, shooting the shit. So if you can, come to that show. It's down at La Bodega Gallery in Barrio Logan. Um, again, I at the beginning of the show, I talked about the Kaboo Cohort Collective show that is happening at Del Mar, the, down at the racetracks. 
if you want to get tickets to that event, I mean, it's going to be crazy. It's a huge art and music festival. They got huge murals. Um, no doubts playing. Uh, the Killers again. Zach Brown band. I don't. I don't have the full list of uh, of performances. Uh, there's some. All, there's all kinds of stuff. Go, go check out kaboodelmar.com. That's K-A-A-B-O-O-D-E-L-M-A-R.com. You can buy passes over there and uh, follow them at Kaboo Artwork and Kaboo Delmar for more information. So what else? And then, of course, we have the five-year anniversary show coming up in November. Um, there's a ton of people who have all been on the podcast who are going to send a couple pieces out to the Daniel Rolnick Gallery for a big five-year anniversary party. So I hope that everyone in Los Angeles who is into the show or um, is an artist and is interested in all the stuff we're doing will come out and hang out. We're going to be recording podcasts there, so you can come and, and talk with me there as well. If you are so inclined, and just shoot the shit. We could talk shit about other artists. <laughs> or whatever, you know, talk about how great everybody else is. Um, so that's coming up on November 7th. Then a little further into the future, another La Bodega show, the third annual Dirty Show that Miss Jacqueline Rose uh, curates is coming up on October 3rd, which I am currently getting ready to work on all that stuff here soon as well. So uh, thanks for listening, guys. I know this was a long show. Again, um, rest in peace to the Piz. They have uh, set up a GoFundMe account for his wife, Yuki, um, in these hard times for the people left behind in the wake of, of deaths. Um, there comes a lot of uh, like financial and uh, clerical burdens that nobody wants to deal with when they are mourning. Um, so if you go to GoFundMe.com slash the Piz, that's T-H-E-P-I-Z-Z. You can go and donate five, ten, hundred bucks, whatever. Um, it looks like they're raising some money, you know, help with funeral costs and, and all those sorts of things. So, again, rest in peace, the Piz. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. I will uh, talk to you next week. All right. Bye.